Will you please turn in your Bibles to Philemon, book of Philemon. And this is our last of three messages in this very short book that is tucked between Titus and Hebrews. So it's only one page in most of your Bibles, so it might be a little hard to find. But we have it marked for you in the Bibles that Gene and Kim and John have. They're going to make their way to the back. If you need a Bible, just get their attention. They'll get one of those to you. And you can just open it to the page that's marked at Philemon. The next week, we'll have an Easter message, and then two weeks from today, we'll start a new series in this hour, as you saw in your program, Our Problem and God's Promise, and that will be looking at the first 12 chapters of the Bible, Genesis 1 through 12. A couple of years ago, Psychology Today published an article titled, Live Longer by Practicing Forgiveness. The article said, Recent research on the health benefits of forgiveness shows that people who can make this mental shift may benefit in ways they didn't anticipate, namely by living longer. It went on to say, earlier research on forgiveness and measures of health show that forgiveness in general is positively associated with better health in terms of the heart, hormones, and immune system. There are also psychological benefits to forgiveness. People who forgive more readily are less likely to be depressed and anxious and more likely to be happy, it said. Now, with all of those benefits, you would think that we would rush to engage in forgiveness. And yet, so few of us practice forgiveness in part, I think, because of a couple of factors. One is that forgiveness makes us vulnerable, makes us vulnerable. If I take you back or you take me back after a wrong has been committed, what's to say you're not going to do it again? Or what's to say I'm not going to do it again? And so when we forgive, we make ourselves vulnerable. And another reason that I think we don't rush to forgive is because it sometimes violates our sense of justice. The particular wrong that has been, has been done may be great. We may have suffered greatly as a result of it. And so you come waltzing back and say, I'm sorry, and then all is forgiven. And that violates our sense of justice. Simply reconciling that quickly after all you did to me doesn't seem right, we think. So that being the case, why should I forgive? Thankfully, that question is addressed at the end of the book of Philemon. Now, if you've been with us for the past two Sundays, you know this short letter is from the Apostle Paul to his friend Philemon. And Paul is asking Philemon to reconcile with and receive his runaway slave, a man named Onesimus. Onesimus left the home of Philemon in the tiny town of Colossae, and he ran away to the town of Rome, the city of Rome, with its nearly 900,000 inhabitants, hoping that he could meld into the crowd. But in God's good providence, he came in contact in Rome with the Apostle Paul. Paul was there under house arrest for preaching the gospel, chained to a Roman guard, and in a rented house. Now, under house arrest, Paul could have visitors, and some people actually stayed with him. And Onesimus spent some time with the great apostle. Now, why was Onesimus attracted to Paul? How did he come into Paul's acquaintance while he was in Rome The Bible doesn't tell us, but it may be that he heard Paul's name in the buzz around Rome. 
regarding the ministry that Paul had there. He may have remembered Paul from what he had heard about him from his owner and friend of Paul, Philemon. Paul had, as we've seen, led Philemon to Christ. And now in his letter to Philemon, he tells Philemon that he's led his runaway slave, Onesimus, to Christ. And he says, as we saw last week, that Onesimus is truly transformed and repentant. And so Paul is sending him back, but with this letter of request to Philemon to receive and to restore him. Now in making that plea, at the end of the letter, he addresses the question that undoubtedly Philemon would ask, and that we ask, and that I've asked in the title of this message. The title is at the top of the outline that is inserted in your program. If you don't have that out already, I encourage you to take it out. And that question is this, why should I? Why should I forgive? We want to answer that question from the last part of the book of Philemon today. Let's ask the Lord to help us as we do. Father, we thank you for this privilege of being here as your people and then having in front of us the very word of God. We thank you for your word that is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And we ask you, Lord, to help us to be open to the light that you give us about this crucial topic of forgiveness. May we have open hearts so that we will be changed as a result of your truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now I say in that outline, there are a number of reasons in answer to that question, why should I forgive? Christians should reconcile, I say in the outline. Christians should forgive, first of all, because of what has been done for them. Christians should reconcile because of what has been done for them. Verse 18 says this. Paul says to Philemon, If he, Onesimus, has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. Now he says, if he has done any wrong. We already know he's done wrong. He's done wrong by by running away. So when he says if he's done any wrong or owes you anything, it most likely refers to an additional wrong of stealing from Paul on the way out the door. That was commonly what runaway slaves would would do. Not only did they run away, but on the way out, they would take some money from their, their owner. And what he owes would be the amount to replace his services in, uh, in Philemon's home. And the amount of that was 500 denarii. That was the going rate for replacing a, a slave in one's, in one's home. That's over, 500 denarii is over a year's salary for a laborer. So he's left, uh, Philemon is going to have to replace him, it's going to cost him that, and then in addition to that, there's whatever he stole from him. And all of that is money that Onesimus clearly does not have. So Paul says, charge it to me. Now many commentators have seen in this a picture of the gospel. Just like Onesimus owed a debt he could not pay, we all owe to God a spiritual debt we cannot pay due to our sin. And Paul, in fact, was not involved in any way with Onesimus' guilt, just as Christ was sinless and separate from us and our sin, and yet he involved himself in the payment of that debt on our behalf. Hebrews chapter 4 says this, We have a high priest who's been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. 
And Paul took the debt of another. He says to charge, that's the word he uses in verse 18, charge it to my account. That word charge is an accounting term. In fact, it's the same word used in scripture for our sin being charged to Christ and his righteousness being credited, charged to us. Romans chapter 4 says this, God will credit righteousness. Same word that Paul uses in verse 18 of Philemon for charging it to my account. God will credit righteousness for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. So Jesus pays this debt that he does not owe. And in fact, he's completely separate from the infraction and the the offense. But he involves himself in it for the sake of another, just as Paul is doing on behalf of Onesimus. We had read earlier in our service the famous passage in Isaiah 53, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And Hebrews chapter 9 says Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. Again, these are sins that he did not participate in, but sins that we committed have a debt to pay for, and yet he says, charge it to my account. It's charged to Christ on our behalf. So in effect, the expositor's Bible commentary says this. Paul's saying, I will repay it, charge it to the bank of heaven. And the reason we say that is because the last part of verse 19 says this. I will pay it back, Paul says, not to mention that you owe me your very self. I'll pay it, charge it to the bank of heaven, because you owe me your very self. Every Christian has reason for gratitude. First, of course, to the Lord, but also to those who brought them to the Lord. And that is what Paul's addressing here. Philemon, God used me as his instrument to bring you to him. And in that sense, you owe me your very self. Now, if you're going to be a forgiving person, if you and I are going to be forgiving people, then we are first going to have to be thankful people. We're going to have to be people who thank the Lord for all that the Lord has done for us and all that the Lord has done for us through his instruments. It's a very healthy thing for every one of us to consider how the Lord has blessed us through the lives of others. I could go on for a very long time listing the people to whom I owe a debt of gratitude. There's my dad. My dad who was with the Lord has been with the Lord since I was 11. My Pentecostal preacher, Dad. And if my dad were alive today, he and I would not agree about some things. But we would be brothers in the Lord. And my dad taught me the truth of Jesus. And my mom carried on that legacy. And then my dad's brother, my uncle, pastored the church after my my dad died. And since my mom had to get a job, my uncle would come and pick up me and my brother in the morning so that we could could go to church on on Sundays when my mom had to work on those Sundays at the Wyandotte Hospital. And God gave me friends in high school. Some of those friends in his good providence are friends and serve with me in in this church. Dad and mom, sometimes called in-laws, but I call them dad and mom. Dad and mom for their ministry to me but also for preparing Kim and giving me her hand in marriage. And I'm thankful for Kim, and I could go on about that. 
for all the ways that she has helped me and all the ways that I've seen in her qualities of Christ that I do not have by nature and that I've needed to acquire. And to my daughters, who amaze me with their commitment to the Lord and the challenge that that is for me to lead them spiritually in our home. To my seminary professors and the investment that they made in me over many years. And to this blessed congregation for putting up with me for these years and for moving me toward Christ's likeness. I could go on and on. And so could you. If we're going to be forgiving people, we have to be thankful people. We have to thank the Lord for the forgiveness that he's given us. And we need to think about the instruments that the Lord has used to provide that for us. Paul says in verse 19, I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. Now, why does he say that? I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. In verse 1, he's already identified that this letter is from, is from him, is from, from Paul. But it was common for Paul to dictate his letters through the use of an amanuensis. That's a a secretary. And he would dictate the letter, and the amanuensis would actually pen the letter. But then at the end, Paul would sign the letter. We see that in Galatians chapter 6, for instance. It's the last chapter of that letter to the churches in Galatia. And he says, see what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand. Now, he's making it a point in, in this uh, letter to Philemon to say, I'm signing this with my own hand because he's just said, charge this to my account. And so he's putting, in effect, his signature to it. He's signing an IOU, a promissory note. And, of course, those always require a personal signature. And so one commentator said, Paul's saying, put this debt on my account and then do this. Then cancel it because you owe me a bunch. Charge it to the bank of heaven. Christians should reconcile because of what has been done for them. If you're going to forgive and you're going to be willing to reconcile, then you and I are going to have to be people who remember what's been done for us. Secondly, Christians should reconcile not only because of what has been done for them, but also because of what it will do for others. What it will do for others. Verse 20, I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Now, the phrase that's translated some benefit is related to the name Onesimus. The word that's translated with those two words, some benefit, is related to the very word of this uh, name of this runaway slave, Onesimus. And we saw last week that Onesimus' name means useful. So he's saying here then, In verse 20, do something that will be useful for me. Paul was saying, in effect, let me find in you, Philemon, as I have in your runaway slave, a true Onesimus, a true useful brother in the Lord. And he says, show that usefulness by refreshing my heart, verse 20. Now back in verse 7, Paul had commended Philemon as being one who often refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. And now he is saying, as you are known for refreshing and renewing and encouraging the hearts of God's people, I'm asking you to do that for me, your friend and brother and mentor and spiritual father and the Lord, and do this by taking Onesimus back and restoring him. 
That would do something for me, says Paul. If you were to do this for him, it would mean something to me. And so Christians should reconcile because of what's been done for them, but also because of what their willingness to forgive will do for others. And then thirdly, I say in your outline, that we should be willing to reconcile because of what we are called to do. What we are called to do. Verse 21 says this, Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I ask. So Paul doesn't dwell on what Philemon owes him. He mentions it, but he doesn't dwell on it. But he moves to the fact that it's simply the right thing to do to forgive and to reconcile. But beyond that in verse 21, he says, I'll know you'll do that. I know that you'll forgive. I'm confident of that. But I'm also confident that you'll do even more. What more might this slave owner do for this runaway slave? It's quite possible that Paul has the expectation that Philemon will give Onesimus his freedom, that he will emancipate him. That Philemon should no longer see Onesimus as property due to the truths that Paul has already recounted back in verse 16, that he's equal to him in his humanity and in his Christianity. So what was said back in verse 16 changes everything. Notice what verse 16 says again. See him, Onesimus, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He's very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as, now notice, a fellow man in his humanity, but also as a brother in the Lord. And for both of these reasons now, Philemon, you need to see him in a different way. And having seen him in a different way, I believe in verse 21, we have a hint of the fact that you need to then do more than just accept him back into your employ. You need to emancipate him and give him his freedom. Christians should be ever ready to forgive and reconcile for a number of reasons. One is what's been done for them, but also what it'll do for others. But it's also what we're called to do. And then I say fourthly, because of what their examples do. Christians should reconcile. Christians should forgive because of what their examples do. And in these closing verses of this short letter, Paul gives six people as examples of what you should do. Six examples that should compel Philemon to do the right thing. The first of those is Paul, verse 22. And one more thing. Prepare a guest room for me, because I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayers. Now, Paul has already reminded him of their relationship and the fact that Philemon came to the Lord through the instrumentality of, of Paul. But now he's saying, I'm going to make a visit. Paul's impending visit would comfort Philemon, but it would also subtly force him to decide soon what it is he's going to do. So Paul is, I believe, and many commentators believe, saying to Philemon, I'm requesting you do this. I'm giving you all of the reasons why you should do this. And I'm also saying, make up your mind quickly. I'll be coming soon. Prepare a room for me. And, and when I get there, unstated but implied, I'll know what you did with this. 
I'll know whether Onesimus is there. I'll know whether Onesimus has been forgiven, whether he's been given his, his freedom. And he says, I hope to be restored to you, end of verse 22, in answer to your prayers. And inserting this raises the question, how could Philemon pray for Paul's release as he and the church that meets in his home, the church of Colossae, had been doing? How could he and that church pray for Paul's release and refuse to release Onesimus? So in verse 22, a master stroke of tact, Paul is saying, in effect, I'll come and check how you did with this. Prepare a room for me. And you've been praying for my release. You need to release Onesimus as well. Then there are five other people mentioned in verses 23 and 24 that serve as motivation for Philemon to do the right thing. The first of those is in verse 23, Epaphras. My fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, he sends you greetings. As do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. Now these same five are mentioned at the end of the book of Colossians. Same five. And one additional person. Colossians chapter 4. Epaphras, who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends greetings. And then Aristarchus. And Mark, my fellow prisoner Aristarchus, sends you his greetings, as does Mark. Again, at the end of the letter that we call the book of Colossians. And then Luke and Demas, chapter 4 and verse 14 of Colossians. Our dear friend Luke, the doctor, and Demas send greetings. Now, I belabor that for this reason. He's got these five names in both letters. Now, it was customary for the benediction to the letters to have greetings from those who are with Paul sent to those to whom he's writing. So since that's customary, then why do I and others suggest that Paul purposely includes these names in the, at the end of Philemon to advance his objective of convincing Philemon to do the right thing? Why don't we just see it as what we always see at the end of Paul's letters? Here's why. Remember this. There were two letters being delivered by Onesimus and a man named Tychicus that I pointed out a couple of weeks ago. The two letters are the letter that we're looking at, Philemon, but also the letter to the Colossians, the book of Colossians. Both of those are being delivered. And both of those are being delivered to the same people. They're being delivered to the church at Colossae. Verse number 2 of Philemon, back in verse 2, it says, Greetings to Philemon, and then greetings to his wife, and then greetings to his son. So Aphia and Archippus. But then it also says, and to the church that meets in your house, verse 2. So Philemon's going to the church. The book of Colossians is going to the church. And in both of them, they mention the same five people. This is a personal letter, though it's also addressed, as I say, to the church that meets in his house. But, as I said, there's also the book of Colossians. And both of these are delivered at the same time and probably read at the same time to the church. And this is what's interesting. The same five guys are mentioned at the end of both. So if the only purpose was to say hello, he's already done that in the other letter. So it appears there must be some other purpose for mentioning them a second time in the book of that's addressed to Philemon and addressed to this particular issue. In Philemon, he's mentioning them to remind Philemon of his comrades in the work of the Lord. 
and that they too know what he's expected to do. I, Paul, have told you what to do. I'm going to come and prepare a room for me, and I'll see whether or not you did it. And, by the way, all your other comrades know what you're supposed to do as, as well. And he mentions them by name. They are laying their lives on the line, Philemon, as am I. Remember back in verse 1, he identifies himself not as an apostle as he normally does, but identifies himself as a prisoner of Jesus. And he starts the letter of Philemon that way in order to remind Philemon that I am laying my life on the line and I'm asking you to do something hard and your comrades are likewise doing the same thing. So he reminds Philemon of who these guys are and the example then that they are for him in what he's being asked to do. Now who are these guys? Let me go through them quickly, each of them. Epaphras. I mentioned that he's mentioned at the end of the book of Colossians. But here's the extended quotation in verses 12 and 13 of Colossians 4. Epaphras, who is one of you, and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends greetings. Now, Epaphras is one of you. That is, he's a native of Colossae. And most believe, as do I, that he is the leader, the pastor of the church in Colossae, and that he also pastors two other churches in Laodicea and Hierapolis. In fact, it goes on to say, he's one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus. He sends his, his greetings. He's always wrestling in prayer for you, that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. I vouch for him that he's working hard for you and for those at Laodicea and Hierapolis. So he's away from them, but he has been their leader. He started those churches in all likelihood and has led them and he will come back. And in the meantime, he's praying for you. And in the very first chapter of Colossians, Epaphras is mentioned by Paul. Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, is a faithful minister of Christ. So Philemon, you've got your comrades as examples to you of what it means to do hard things and serve the Lord. Now do the right thing. He mentions Mark as well. And Mark is mentioned in Colossians 4. This way, Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, sends his greetings. And then in parentheses, notice what it says. The parentheses are in the NIV translation. You have received instructions about him, Mark. If he comes to you, welcome him. Now, what's that all about? Mark's with me. He sends his greetings. If he comes and visits you, you've been told about him, welcome him. What have they been told about him? Well, they've been told, undoubtedly, about an issue that arose at the end of Acts chapter 15, where Paul and Barnabas had, the Bible tells us, a sharp disagreement, a sharp dispute, and that sharp dispute was so serious that they parted ways. Now, the issue over which they parted ways was none other than a young man named John Mark, this Mark. And he had gone back on a trip that the three of them had taken. He had turned back. He couldn't take the pressure, as it were. He went back home. And for Paul, he said, I can't have any dead weight with me. And so we're not going to take Mark with us on our future journeys. Barnabas said, hey, let's be a little more forgiving. And Paul inserts here in Colossians 4, you know, he's, I, look, I'm a forgiving guy too, but it's his cousin, all right? So that's one of the reasons that he tended to be a bit more forgiving on this issue. He's the cousin of Barnabas. So I've given you instructions about him. Now, he doesn't elaborate on what those instructions are. 
But in the time since that failure on Mark's part and that dispute that arose between Paul and Barnabas and they're going separate ways, Barnabas has worked with him. In 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 13, 1 Peter 5.13, it indicates that Peter, the apostle Peter, had worked with Mark as well. And Mark has undoubtedly come a long way in the time since, and in all probability, the instruction that Paul has given about Mark is this, that he's not the young man that he was when he deserted us. He's come a long way, so when he comes to you now, welcome him. In fact, he had come such a long way that when Paul came to the very end of his life, writing the very last of his letters in the New Testament, 2 Timothy, the very last chapter of the last letter that we have from Paul, this is what he says. Get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. And so Philemon, remember Mark. Remember Epaphras. But then he mentions a third guy. Aristarchus, and he is also mentioned at the end of Colossians 4. My fellow prisoner, Aristarchus, sends you his greetings. So here is Aristarchus, who is so willing to be associated with the ministry of Paul in the advance of the work of Christ that he's willing to be imprisoned with Paul, my fellow prisoner. And we read about Aristarchus also in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 19... When the gospel came to the city of Ephesus, city of Ephesus, the city of Ephesus had one of the seven great wonders of the world, the temple to Diana of the Ephesians. And the Bible says that in Acts chapter 19, the people would come into the streets and they would cry out, great is Diana of the Ephesians. And there was great industry and business that took place in the city of Ephesus all around this idolatry to this goddess Diana. There was the temple, one of the seven wonders of the world. But then there was all of the trinkets and all of the, uh, all of the uh, uh, implements of, of idol worship that were sold in the marketplace. And as a result of people turning to Christ in Ephesus, people were turning away from idol worship and away from Diana. And because of that, Acts chapter 19 says, a riot ensued. There was a riot in the streets. And here's what the Bible says. Acts 19. The whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and our Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions. Philemon. Here's another guy who's laying it on the line. He's my fellow prisoner. He was in Ephesus. He was arrested and seized. And I'm asking you, no, we're asking you to do this thing. And then he mentions Demas. Demas. And unfortunately, the only other thing we know about Demas in Scripture is from that likewise last chapter of the last letter that Paul wrote, 2 Timothy chapter 4. And here's what it says. Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted so here's one in this group who started out and was deemed worthy of mention, but it's a warning, Philemon, that someone can prove unfaithful. Later, Demas proved to be that very, that very thing. And he mentions, fifthly, Philemon, Luke sends his greetings. 
And Luke, we know as Dr. Luke, the beloved doctor. Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke. Luke, the regular companion of the Apostle Paul. And in that last chapter of Paul's last book, 2 Timothy 4, where he famously writes, The time of my departure is at hand. I have run the race. I have kept the faith. And shortly thereafter, Paul would be executed for his faith in Jesus. This is what the Bible says in that chapter. Only Luke is with me. That's how faithful Luke has been. And so Philemon, you know all of these people. And because of who they are and because of their, they are comrades with you and with me in the work of the Lord, because of all of that, you should do the right thing because of the examples that they are to you. Christians should reconcile because of what's been done for them. Because of what it will do for others. Because it's what we're called to do. Because of their examples. And lastly in your outline. Christians should reconcile because of what they have. Because of what they have. Verse 25. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. So what do we have? We have the grace of God given to us and empowering us to do what is otherwise unnatural and impossible. And I'm convinced that Philemon must have forgiven Onesimus. Most believe, as I do, that this book would not have been included in the canon of the Word of God and Philemon extolled as a paragon of spirituality if he had not. Paul said he would come and visit. After his imprisonment in Rome, he did indeed make many trips. One of them, no doubt, was to the city of Colossae and to his friend Philemon and the church that met in his house. And remember, the entire church came to know about this letter. Not just the church at Colossae, but because this was an inspired letter, the entire body of Christ came to know about it. Because it was put in the collection of the sacred writings. And by the grace of God, Philemon had the power to do what's not natural, but rather supernatural. He had the power to forgive, and so does every born-again follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. You have the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and therefore you have the power to forgive. One preacher told a story that illustrates the supernatural power of forgiveness that God graciously gives to his children. It's somewhat long, but stay with me as I recount it. Most of you know from history that the United States entered World War II in the aftermath of an unprovoked attack by the Japanese on our naval base at Pearl Harbor, Hawaii. That attack on December 7, 1941, a day that will live in infamy, President Roosevelt would say, that surprise attack took place at 7.55 a.m., On a cloudless Sunday, in two hours, 2,403 Americans were dead, 1,178 were wounded, 169 U.S. aircraft were totally destroyed, three massive ships were sunk, and 18 others were damaged. This incredible attack was led by a 39-year-old Japanese top gun pilot, Commander Mitsuo Fushida, whose life hero was Adolf Hitler. Fushida led 183 Japanese airplanes into the harbor at Honolulu 
and devastated thousands of men and a whole nation and triggered, as you know, the massive, massive death that came through the Americans' reaction with atomic power, as well as with our conventional weaponry. Mitsuo Fushida is a name that, if you read any World War II history, you will see over and over and over again. His plane was hit numerous times as he came and went from Pearl Harbor, but he survived. After the war was over, he was besieged with memories of death. He decided to become somewhat of a recluse, and so he took up farming near Osaka, Japan. It gave him time to think. He focused increasingly on the problem of peace, and he decided in the midst of his guilt and worry over all that he had done in the war to write a book. He determined that the title of the book would be No More Pearl Harbors. He would urge the world to devote itself to pursuing peace. Mitsuo Fushida struggled in vain, however, to find a principle by which peace could work. For years, he tried to find a principle that would let him write the book, but he couldn't find it. He couldn't find anything in the religions of Japan or the philosophies of the world. And then the story took a dramatic change. The story goes like this. The first report came from a friend, a lieutenant who had been captured by the Americans and incarcerated in a prisoner of war camp in America. Fushida saw his name in a newspaper on a list of POWs who were being returned to Japan. And so he determined to visit him. When they met, they spoke of a number of things, and then Fushida asked the question that was uppermost in his mind, how did the Americans treat you in that POW camp? His friend said, we were treated well. Then he told Fushida a story which he said made an immense impression upon him and on every other prisoner in that American camp. Something happened at the camp where I was interred, he said, which has made it possible for us who were in that camp to forego all our resentment and hatred and to return with a forgiving spirit and a feeling of lightheartedness instead. Fushida said, well, what is that? This former prisoner said there was a young American girl named Margaret Peggy Covell, whom they judged to be about 20 years old. She came to the camp on a regular basis, doing all she could for the prisoners. She brought things to them they might enjoy, such as magazines and newspapers. She looked after their sick, was constantly solicitous to help them in every way. They received an immense shock, however, when they asked her why she was so concerned to help these Japanese prisoners. She answered, because my parents were killed by the Japanese army. Such a statement might shock a person from any culture, but it was absolutely incomprehensible to the Japanese. In their society, no offense could be greater than the murder of one's parents. Peggy tried to explain her motives. She said her parents had been missionaries. When the Japanese invaded the Philippine Islands, her parents escaped to the mountains for safety. In due time, they were discovered. The Japanese charged them with being spies and told them they were to be put to death. They denied that they were spies, but the Japanese would not be convinced, and her parents were executed. Peggy didn't hear about her parents' fate until the end of the war. At first, she was furious with grief and indignation. Thoughts of her parents' last hours of life filled her with great sorrow. She could envision them trapped, wholly at the mercy of their captors, no way out. She saw the merciless brutality of the soldiers. She saw them facing their Japanese executioner, ex executioners and falling lifeless to the ground on that far-off Philippine mountain. Then she began to consider 
her parents' selfless love for the Japanese people. And gradually she became convinced that they had forgiven the people God had called them to love and serve. And then it occurred to her that if her parents had died without bitterness or rancor toward their executioners, why should her attitude be any different? Should she be filled with hatred and vengeful feelings when they had been filled with love and forgiveness? Therefore, Peggy chose the path of love and forgiveness. She decided to minister to the Japanese prisoners in the nearby POW camp as a proof of her sincerity. Now, Fushida was touched by that story. But he was especially impressed with the possibility that it's exactly what he had been searching for, a principle that's sufficient to be a basis for peace. The principle was forgiving love. Could that be the principle upon which the message of his projected book, No More Pearl Harbors, could be based? Stay with me. Shortly after this, Fushida was summoned by General Douglas MacArthur to Tokyo. As he got off the train, he was handed a pamphlet entitled, I Was a Prisoner of Japan. It told about an American sergeant, Jacob DeShazer, who had spent 40 months in a Japanese prison cell and who after the war had come back to Japan to love and serve the Japanese people by helping them to come to know Jesus Christ. DeShazer told about how he was a bombardier on one of the 16 Army B-25 airplanes that launched on April 18, 1942, to bomb Tokyo. None of the planes were shot down, but they did run out of fuel. DeShazer was captured, and he was incarcerated for 40 months, the entire duration of the war. DeShazer noted that all the prisoners were treated badly. He said that at one point he almost went insane from the violent hatred of the Japanese guards. And then one day, a guard brought them a Bible. They were in solitary confinement, and so they took turns reading it. When it was DeShazer's turn, he had it for three weeks. He read it eagerly and intensely. He read the Old Testament. He read the New Testament. And finally he writes, quote, The miracle of conversion took place on June 8, 1944. Jacob DeShazer was converted, born again. And he determined that he would, that if he lived until the war was over, and if he were released, he would return to the U.S., he would study the Bible for a period of time, and he would return to Japan to share the message of Christ with the Japanese people, and that's exactly what he did. Great crowds came to hear him. Many people responded and were saved. And here was a second person who forgave the Japanese and came in forgiveness to show them the love of Christ. Fushida was deeply impressed. He got a New Testament and began to read it. In September of 1949, eight years after Pearl Harbor, he was reading Luke 23, and he heard Jesus say this, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And he bowed his head, and he received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Mitsuo Fushida, devotee of Adolf Hitler, became a Christian. He wrote that book. You can find it in the library today. The title is not No More Pearl Harbors. The title is From Pearl Harbor to Golgotha. From Pearl Harbor to Calvary. In addition to his book, Fushida spoke in churches about the grace of God 
that he grants in order for us to be able to forgive. And he is with the Lord today. Now, friends, Christians forgive because of what they have. And what they have is the power of the grace of God to supernaturally do what does not come naturally. The power of forgiveness can affect the world. The Holy Spirit knew that. God knew that. Paul knew that. Philemon needed to know that. And we need to know that as well. It can affect the world. And it can affect your world. And that little book is written for forgiveness. The supernatural power of forgiveness that comes by the grace of God to affect your world and my world. Friends, we should not come away from these three weeks looking at this marvelous letter having any unresolved issues between us and anyone. God is calling us to reconciliation. And by the grace of God, we have the power to do what is unnatural. Now, I said at the beginning that one of the reasons we don't is because to forgive makes us vulnerable. To forgive makes us vulnerable, but just remember this. You are never outside the hands of your God. And so you may make yourself vulnerable before men, but you are always in the security of the hands of your God as you obey him. So the person who obeys God and trusts God can make his or herself vulnerable. And I said another reason we don't do that is because it violates our sense of justice. You're just going to say, forgive me and all's okay? Ah, friend. Remember that God's justice has been meted out on the cross in the person of the Lord Jesus. God's justice has been satisfied on the cross. The forgiveness that we have been given and the forgiveness that we are therefore able to give is all because the infinite price of the death of the Son of God has been paid. And so it is not cheap grace. It is at the expense of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. That we are able to say when someone who has harmed us deeply is moved by the Spirit of God and says, will you forgive me? And our response should be, our response must be, I trust our response will be, I forgive you. Let's move forward together under the blood of Jesus and for the glory of God. We're going to bow and pray in just a moment. And it is my heart's desire that as a result of these three weeks in this book that there would be relationships mended. Can you forgive your spouse? Is there anything that your spouse has done that you cannot forgive? Can you forgive your parents? Parents, can you forgive your children? Church member, can you forgive your pastor? Pastor, can you forgive church members? There is no relationship, no relationship. And there is no deed that is beyond the supernatural forgiveness that comes through the grace of our God. Let's bow together. Oh Lord, we ask you to do what only your spirit can do. Only your spirit through your word can do what we have heard today. Only your spirit. 
through the truth of your word, centered on the gospel of Jesus, can do what we have heard today. Only that can cause Philemon to receive Onesimus and to emancipate him. Only that can cause Fushida to come to the Lord Jesus Christ and see there the love that replaces the hatred that he had in his heart. Only the gospel of the Lord Jesus can cause a father to run to a prodigal son who he sees far off and does not wait for him to come and grovel but with open arms says, I've been waiting for you. We're going to have a party because of your return. Only the grace of God makes it possible for those who have done wrong to go to those that they have wronged, understanding that whatever wrong they do to those on a horizontal level, to human beings, is infinitesimal compared to the infinite offense that we have done against you. And so because you have forgiven us, we can then go to others and seek their forgiveness, swallow our pride, and say we were wrong. Oh, Lord God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for Jesus. And thank you for the difference that it makes and should make every moment of every day. This day, this week, we ask you, Lord, move in the hearts of your people. Mend relationships based upon the truths that we have heard that we may together bring glory to you. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.